When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Mike Brown, author, nerd, and host of the Dark Poutine Podcast. Join me and Morgan Knudsen, author, paranormal researcher, and host of the TV shows Paranormal 911 and Haunted Hospitals, as we take you on a journey for the curious about the unseen, the mysterious, and the incredible things happening in the world about us. Welcome to Supernatural Circumstances. I'm a big fan of the work of this week's guest, Dean Radin, Ph.D. Dean is the chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, Associated Distinguished Professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies, and chairman of the biotech company Cognigenics. He earned an M.S. in electrical engineering and a Ph.D. in psychology from the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and in 2022, was awarded an honorary DSC Doctor of Science from the Swami Vivekananda University, an accredited university in Bangalore, India. Before joining the IONS research staff in 2001, Raiden worked at AT&T Bell Labs, Princeton University, the University of Edinburgh, and SRI International. He's given over 690 talks and interviews worldwide, and he's the author or co-author of some 300 scientific and popular articles, four dozen book chapters, nine books, four of which have been translated into 15 foreign languages, The Conscious Universe, 1997, HarperCollins, Entangled Minds, 2006, Simon & Schuster, Supernormal, 2013, Random House, and Real Magic, 2018 Penguin Random House. Dean's most recent best-selling book, Real Magic, which Morgan will discuss in further detail, is one of my all-time favorites, connecting the scientific and the spiritual in an easily digestible, reader-friendly way from Dr. Raiden's website. Quote, What if magic were real? Not magic like a Hogwarts letter arriving in the mail or the feigned magic of Houdini, but real magic a genuine but hidden power that resides within each individual, a power tied to our consciousness, a power that makes phenomena like telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition, and psychokinesis not only possible, but inevitable. According to Dean Radin, magic is real, and science is on its way to understanding it. In the book Real Magic, Radin paves the road to scientific horizons arguing that magic is a natural aspect of reality that everyone is capable of tapping into with diligent practice. Unlike books that discuss magical beliefs or insist that magic has been disenchanted by science, Raiden's view is grounded in a century of evidence-based laboratory tests. He pulls from his 40 years of experience conducting controlled laboratory studies in universities and industry, including formerly classified work for the U.S. government. His results, plus those compiled from a century of scientific research, are astounding, demonstrating that thoughts are things 
and that we can sense others' emotions and intentions from a distance, that intuition and intention are more powerful than we've been taught, and that everyone can tap into the power that undergirds the physical universe itself. Here's Morgan with more on Real Magic. Do you remember sitting by your window when you were a child and wishing on a star? Hearing the illustrious words of Jiminy Cricket as he sang in true Disney fashion, When You Wish Upon a Star, in the long-loved film Pinocchio. It became a theme song for children and Disney fans everywhere. Or how about visualizing, getting your most coveted present under the Christmas tree, and lo and behold, there it was on Christmas morning, just as you had envisioned it. Or what about this? Have you ever had a vision, so clear you could taste it, and then, through means you might not have expected or understood, you watched it come to fruition in ways that seemed supernatural? We're not talking here about the magic we see in movies, lightning rods, shooting from wands, or magic powers like invisibility. We're talking today about real magic, the kind we like to explore in parapsychology that can, undoubtedly, change your life if you begin to understand it. So what does that mean exactly? Over the last 15 years, there's been an explosion of a concept called the Law of Attraction. It first made it into public awareness en masse through Rhonda Byrne's The Secret, but in reality, the knowledge began long before she ever decided to put it into a book. Medium Esther Hicks, who channels the consciousness group known as Abraham, as well as Jane Roberts Seth and Louis Benjamin's The Humble Ones, all spoke of this concept long ago to the few in their audience who had mind to pay attention. At the time, quantum science had not caught up to this information, and many people rejected the idea that our thought, intention, and emotions can, in fact, alter our reality. How could something that feels like it is only happening inside our heads possibly alter physical reality? How silly! It was thrown into the realm of New Age woohoo and wishful thinkers, people simply mistaking coincidences for actual manifestation. However, things have greatly changed as quantum physics has fast-tracked our understanding of our own beingness in the world, and now, experiment after experiment is presenting the same results. Intention matters. How we think matters. And what we visualize can alter the outcome of not only our lives, but the lives of others. That's right. Your intention can influence another's reality. So be careful who you tell your aspirations to. This new understanding and the historic and ancient knowledge of manifestation through thought and focus can be no better understood than by reading Dr. Dean Radin's last book, Real Magic, Ancient Wisdom, Modern Science, and a guide to the secret power of the universe. Did the academic community really try to put a stopper in allowing the public access to this information? Is this step towards empowerment one step too far for the powers that be? Join us in our conversation with Dean and decide for yourself. It is amazing to have you here because I have been a uh, a fan of your work for a really long time and uh, the the studies and whatnot that you've put forward over the years have really, to me, been leading edge. And I know, uh, Mike, you've read uh, some of his material as well. Um, 
but you know, we, we hear about your research so often. What's your story? Where did you start in terms of your interest in science? Well, I don't, I don't really know because uh, no one in my immediate family was involved in science. Uh, I don't think I, I didn't know any scientists or even engineers until I was probably in college. So I think it's, if I had to guess, I would guess it's because I, I read a lot as a child. Uh, and in science, science fiction, fairy tales, uh, just just about anything. I read an enormous amount. So that probably sparked a certain degree of natural curiosity about the world, uh, which remains. I'm curious about everything. Um, I think one of the reasons I may have been attracted to psychic phenomena in particular is because it's such a popular theme within science fiction and fairy tales that it makes you wonder, is this simply a matter of wish fulfillment that people would like to have better control, which psychic phenomena suggests? Sure. Or is there some truth to it? Because one of the things that you learn after reading an enormous amount of mythology and parables is that these are, are stories that tell you something about the nature of reality that can't be put into a strict scientific narrative yet. And so I started looking into the literature on anybody, any scientist who had been studying these kinds of effects and found a pretty large literature. And of course, it intrigued me even more that it wasn't only that there were stories about psychic effects, but there were ways of testing it. So I spent probably 10 years reading the literature and trying little experiments myself and getting to the point where I was beginning to see that there was reason to believe what I had read from the discipline of parapsychology. Uh, and of course that, in a sense, it changes everything. Yeah. It changes it in the sense that if you go through a scientific or an engineering curriculum, you're either never encounter these kinds of effects or you're told that they're just nonsense. There's There are other reasons to, uh, other ways of explaining why these things can be true. And so having done enough experiments myself and reading the, the appropriate literature on it, it became the most interesting thing that I could think about doing, which was being, uh, being a scientist who was paid to look into these phenomena, try to figure out what are they and what's going on. Did you have a certain amount of eye rolling among your colleagues when you announced maybe to some of them that you were planning on doing this? Um, so not so much eye rolling. I mean, I, most people I've met are, have some interest one, one way or the other. They may strongly believe because of their personal experiences. They may strongly disbelieve, not because of their experience typically, but because of what they think the nature of reality is. Uh, and, but the, the strongest reactions I would typically get were from people who were religiously fundamental, mm -hmm. so or fundamentalists who, who completely believed in the phenomena, but also felt that they were demonic. And so you, you shouldn't even look into such things. Yeah. Like you were at the peril of your soul. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, so that, I mean, that it was kind of surprising to me because even in technical environments where, I was never shy about my interests. I would occasionally run into somebody who said, you, you shouldn't be doing this. 
and you know, and I drill down and why, why not? Isn't anything open to study within science? And their opinion is no. There's some things that you you should not know, and I completely disagree. I think we, the more we know about everything, the better off we are. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I thought it was so interesting when when I was reading Real Magic, how there was almost this level of violence towards the subject and uh, the the threats that were coming from the community. And, you know, you guys were submitting these legitimate studies and papers, and it just seemed like there was just a it, like attack mode is the only thing I can I can put to it. It was it, it really struck me as more than just all oh, these people you know don't believe or something like that. But it seemed like there was this this violent almost anger towards anything coming through that they had they felt like they had to stop. Yeah, yeah, and that still continues. It's it's one of the reasons why I'm almost as interested in the sociology and philosophy of science as I am in science. Because if, you, if you're not working in a controversial field, it's easy to forget that the aspirations of science, where you're free to study anything, those aspirations are actually not true. That's not how the real world works. And in the academic world in particular, it's all about ideology. It's about your ideas. And after a while, as an academic, you begin to identify with your ideas, because after all, your ideas eventually lead to your entire career. That's sure. that's what it's all about. So if somebody comes along saying, well, you know, some of your ideas are probably not correct. That evokes an emotional response because it's like being physically attacked. So I understand where the, the, the invective comes from, uh, but I also wish that anyone that is pursuing a scientific career also takes courses in the history, the sociology, and the philosophy of science, because then they would better understand that when you're challenged by something that is considered an anomaly, something that doesn't fit, that's where the future breakthroughs are. Mm -hmm. It's always the case. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I always, well, Mike, you and I have talked about this before on the, on the show Mm -hmm. uh, about the idea of approaching things with curiosity rather than fear. And in so many different areas of our lives that it, that methodology would clearly benefit. And, you know, this is just obviously one of them. But I, do you think that these people at this point are almost mistaking science as a religion? Like it's become a bit of a dogma? Sure. That's the that's what scientism is. Yeah. Some people who don't like uh, traditional religious ideas uh, and fall in love with science. And after a while, and these are, I would say, generally are not scientists. They're people doing things that are not science, but they they have accepted the, the scientific narratives as being the truth. And the way I try to explain to people then is, well, if it's the truth, then how come we change our textbooks about every two years? And and the answer is that unlike religion, where there's dogma that doesn't change, almost by definition in the religion, in science, it's always changing. So to hitch your boat to something that is changing, well, you need to recognize that, saying everything that we think we know at this point from a scientific perspective is provisional. 
yeah. lot of it works pretty well. When it gets turned into technology, it works really well. But the vast majority of especially leading edge science is completely provisional. We don't know if it's true or not. Oh, absolutely. And it, it, that's, I think, one of the one of the things that I really loved about your your last book here, Real Magic, was that there is such a, a growth and an ebb and a flow that is required by people in order to to see some of this this work that we we have to flow with with life and and what's going on in life and I just I, I, it really connected with me that really connected with me um, to get into this a little bit because I it thoroughly enjoyed this book Mike and I talk about manifestation and and psi and parapsychology here all the time uh, can you explain to the audience a little bit before we get into this what you mean by magic because I know many people will have the yeah. image in their head about Harry Potter and Lord yeah. of the Rings and things like that right so what I mean is that if you look at uh, esoteric traditions, which are, go back as far as human history goes, uh, they, they're all based on a similar concept of consciousness as being primary over the physical world. A philosopher would say it's idealism, uh, which is the flip side of the current scientific worldview, which is materialism which says that it's not consciousness, which is primary, but rather matter and energy. And, and so from that perspective, because most scientists are taught within a materialistic perspective, they, th there's only certain ways, it's like lenses through which you see the world. There are certain things that are allowable and certain things that are not. So if you take the esoteric approach, you say, well, there are, people have been pretty smart for a long time and for 10,000 or more years, that was the prevailing view of how things worked. And from that perspective, then, you can say that uh, technology as we know it today is, by analogy to science, uh, if you take that relationship, then magic is the technology of the esoteric ideas. It is a practice based on a certain worldview. So there's three categories of practices. There's divination seeing through space and time. There's force of will, which in parapsychology we'd call psychokinetic effects, mind-matter interaction. And there's theurgy, which is the idea of working with spirits. So those are practices that fall naturally out of a worldview that assumes that there's something about consciousness which is fundamental, and more importantly, that it, can, it, it transcends the limitations of the everyday world. So that's what I mean by magic, those particular kinds of practices. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. And you, you talk in the book, too, about the three basic similarities between many of them, like consciousness is fundamental, everything's interconnected, and there is only one consciousness. And this seems very much to be leaning in the direction of supporting things like panphysicism and, and whatnot. It's, is that accurate? Yeah, yeah, that, that's accurate. Yeah, I think it, it's so interesting because you see so many of these 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 ideas that are becoming more more prominent and more dominant within within things like parapsychology. And I know, you know, Mike, you've been reading A Course in Miracles. Yeah, yeah, um, that is, you know, it's something that I'm I'm trying to wrap my brain around. I find the the language in it is a little uh, inaccessible at times. Um, 
so I, I'm reading Dean's books uh, as sort of, <laughs> they sort of help me to understand some of the concepts anyway. Yeah, it's, uh, but I, th- I think it's interesting how it, it all kind of, it pops up in these, these different areas, you know, through just throughout history as uh, Dean, as you talk about, um, and certain people seem to have a bit of a disposition for this, uh, which is interesting. And I get that question all the time as people asking, you know, it, are there certain people that are more likely to be able to do this or get better results? Are there, are there characteristics that make people more open to being able to do this? There's definitely something about talent in this domain. It's, it's probably very similar to whatever it is that causes someone to have musical talent or sports talent, probably closer to musical talent though. And that this is uh, uh, not exactly a cognitive or perceptual talent, but it's something like that. It's all about how you can use your attention and intention. So for somebody, for a lot of people who who start learning how to meditate, for example, they immediately encounter mind wandering and um, the chattering monkey brain and all of that. It's very difficult for them to get into a state where it's completely silent inside the the so-called still point, which is where you want to get to when you meditate. Some people can do that like immediately, like they are, they're taught a few things about how to meditate. And then after five minutes or they're thinking, what's the big deal? I can just turn off my mind. Well, that state of becoming completely quiet inside is associated with better performance, especially in perceptual side tasks. Uh, whether it's also associated with psychokinetic effects, not entirely clear. Mm-hmm. That may have something more to do with the ability to maintain tight focus without mind wandering. But in both cases, some people simply are able to do it. So we started looking at uh, whether there may be a genetic component to this. Interesting. And in a very small scale study, we found that, yeah, it looks like there is possibly a genetic component uh, that some people have and other people don't, which is associated with the ability to maintain this state, which a magician would call gnosis mm-hmm. and a yogi would call samadhi. Some people can just fall into those mystical states very easily, but most of us can't. It's fascinating how uh, you just referenced uh some very ancient beliefs and and how this sort of thought has come to be called new age, but it isn't new at all. No, it's, it's a resurrection of what used to be the prevailing opinion about the nature of reality for up until maybe 500 years ago. So for a very long time. Now that said, there are many things that the ancients believe that are probably not correct because science has become uh, extremely effective at understanding aspects of the physical world. Sure. Uh, where esotericism seems to be ahead of the pack has to do with the nature of the mental world. Mm. Yeah. Because science is sense. not very good at that yet. Yeah. It seems like, it seems like it, consciousness in our, our, want to to strive and understand our physical world has almost almost it took a back seat in in a lot of ways which is which is interesting because i i mean I, it makes sense to me because people really want to understand what they can see and touch and 
feel like they can control and, and things like that. But it does. It almost feels like consciousness took a bit of a backseat in our in our you know, striving to, to understand what's, what's physically in front of us. And, and maybe that's where some, some of that attack or that viciousness comes from, from the people that are struggling with these ideas is that we're asking them to make a paradigm shift as to how they see the world instead of just offering them a, you know, offering them an, an ABC solution. It's like, no, 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 you got to actually sit down and do some internal work to really get there. And I, you know, some people I, I, I don't think are ready to do that. Do, do you think that's true? Yeah, we, we have different personalities, and different predilections. And so some people are naturally very open to new experience. Other people are very closed to new experience. So, I mean, that, that's just one facet of personality, but the, that factor of openness seems to be associated pretty strongly, not only with experiences that people have, that could, that could be called anomalous, just a wide range of anomalous experiences. Uh, but it, 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 in many ways, it determines how somebody's going to react, both if they have an experience that they hadn't expected, or if they're listening to somebody else talk about it. Mm, and yeah. I probably, I mean, I'm very open to all kinds of things, but I've also encountered phenomena or claims of phenomena that I didn't believe because it, it pushes the boggle threshold. So what I'm referring to here is spoon bending. Right. So, you know, a lot of people say that they've gone to a spoon bending party and then they could do things. And I've read other people saying this, and I even know close friends who say that they've done that. And I had always assumed that it was simply a matter of using force without being aware of it. Mm -hmm. It was unconscious bending. So my challenge was that if somebody has a, a fork or a spoon, they bend it at the neck of, of that implement, you don't, it doesn't take much force to do that. Right. And so that's not very interesting. So I was interested in uh, bending the bowl of a soup spoon in half. Right. Which, yeah. Which is virtually impossible to do with your fingers without causing injury. And yet, uh, I went to a party one time where this sort of thing was happening, and they sat down in front of a lady who claimed that she was able to do that. And so I was kind of, I was holding a spoon and kind of mimicking the way she was holding it, and it turned out she was not able to do it that day, but I did. Oh, for oh wow. Sakes. And I know that it wasn't forced. I, I basically just pinched the bowl once it felt soft, and it flopped over, and I, I still have it on my desk today to remind me that the world is full of very strange things. What a neat experience. Uh, I, I would know... have it framed. <laughs> <laughs> Put a shadow box on the wall. Yeah, yeah. I know that the Monroe Institute has been offering spoon bending classes as well. And I've been, I was talking with uh, uh, one of the, one of the practitioners there and, and talking about the idea of, of, participating in something like that because what a phenomenal experience especially for people who are on the fence about something like that 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 this this reality is malleable like what a neat experience but you talk about the a state of of being in the book which i thought touched on so many things and so many aspects of what we're talking about and that is effortless striving mm -hmm. and the idea that it's that when that that's really when the the magic happens and and when we go back through 
history and different teachers and philosophers. We, like we see this over and over and over again. Uh, like Neville Goddard talked about this a lot. Of course, Abraham Hicks and Seth and and all of these different these different sources. Um, this no resistance, but yet not wanting something at the same time. And that's a really difficult state to get into because I think I, I think a lot of people would get hung up there. Um, can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, Yoda said this as well. Yeah. There, there is no try. There's do or not do. And and it's true. It's When we think about trying something, try really hard to do it, there's an element of anxiety. Absolutely. That part of that. And that seems to be the side killer mm-hmm. in a sense. Anxiety will, will override the actual effort and then, then you end up seeing nothing. So it, it takes a while, takes a lot of practice for most people to get into a state where the, the, the focus is there and the intention, but without any anxiety. And that, as I said, it doesn't come naturally to most people. Certainly doesn't to me. No, I mean, well, Mike, we we've talked about this quite a bit on on the show. Is just that as soon as you get into the the wanting, I think immediately our subconscious brain or even our conscious brain starts kicking in and going either you know, oh, you can't have that, or that that's not possible, or just anxiety that you might not get it. Is, is this where the majority of people get screwed up with this? Because I feel like this is the point at which people go well, this either doesn't work and I don't believe in it, or mm-hmm. this is absolutely, <laughs> this is absolutely real. Oh my gosh. I just had this amazing result, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's related to the first timers effect. So we right. see this again and again, whether it's a perceptual sigh or psychokinetic effect, that the first time somebody tries an experiment, provided that they're at least a little bit open to the possibility that it's going to work, you suspend your disbelief, just like you do in a movie then it's likely good to work. It'll work really well. So somebody will look at the results and they'll become frightened because mm-hmm. they, they, they're they suddenly realizing that their mind is way more powerful than they thought before. And they're going to try to deconstruct, well, what did I do? How do I do it again? Am I the, the appointed one, the chosen one, because <laughs> they have these amazing abilities? Right. All of that gets jumbled up very quickly in, into somebody's mind. And some people can't handle that. They... they They'll have a psychotic break. They'll have delusions of grandeur. There's all kinds of psychological things that can happen when you encounter something that you that either shatters your belief system or that uh, shows you something that you didn't think was possible. And that if you're not completely stable and grounded, uh, that's that could cause problems. Yeah, that I I, I can't even imagine, especially if you're dealing with somebody who you know maybe already has those tendencies or has a bit of a personality disorder or something like that <laughs> where that would where that would end up taking them but you know I, I love how you talk about the idea that there's there's something that we're doing in this in this process and of course the I think the majority of people in the world now associate this kind of thing with with law of attraction uh you know Oftentimes in in, paras- in physics and parapsychology, we call it the law of correspondences. Um, is that the same? Is is that roughly the same thing? If if people were to make that association, I I would say so. Yes. So oftentimes on in interviews, I'm asked about the relationship between 
especially mind-matter interaction phenomena and affirmations, because it's obviously that they're closely related to each other. Um, it's also a very strong element of the magical traditions. That's what the grimoires are all about. Sure. Mm-hmm. Right? You have thousands of uh, recipes for producing the result that you want to get. So is it related? Yes. We In the laboratory, of course, we're using pretty simple systems, physical systems, and using things like statistics and so on to to try to uh, see if if mind actually interacts and changes the behavior of material systems. And I'd say overall, the answer is yes, we, we can do that to a very small extent. At, at least in the laboratory, we see small outcomes. That suggests to me that in the, in the real world, where there's real motivations for things to happen, as opposed to the contrived ones that, w- that we have in the laboratory, uh, the effects are probably bigger. Mm-hmm. They're probably still probabilistic, mostly. And so an affirmation will work in a probabilistic manner. And the probabilities then are related to what is the a priori likelihood of something happening. So the story I give on this is, uh, as an example for of an affirmation, I'll say, well, I want, which is the beginning of any affirmation, I want a gold-plated Mercedes. Yeah. to appear in my driveway and it's mine. Yeah. And of course that's possible except sure. that when you think about all of the things that need to happen for that to actually show up. If it's not going to just simply go poof out of nothing, which just seems unlikely. I mean it's possible because quantum mechanics allows that. It's just that it would, might take a thousand universes in order for that thing to accidentally happen by itself. So how else could it happen? Well, the the car has to be made by somebody. It has to be somewhere. It has to be transported for some strange reason. They have to give it to me and so on. So it's possible. But if I can push probabilities around, I can be pushing them a long, long time, and it would not bring it close enough to a probability of one for the thing to show up. Right. So I, I said this story once, and I was on a podcast, and somebody heard me who happened to be a practicing witch. Mm-hmm. And she's, she sent me a gold-plated Mercedes. Oh, that's Except funny. <laughs> it's, the, it's a little toy car. Yeah. You know, it's one inch long. Yeah. Uh, and then the wheels work and the steering wheel and it, everything works on it, except, of course, it's one inch. So, and it wasn't really gold. It's gold painted, I guess. Right. And, and so her, her comment on that was when you do an affirmation, you have to be extremely clear about what it is mm. that you want, because I got a gold-plated Mercedes and I put it on my driveway and I took a picture of it. And so I got what I wanted, even though in that case, it was just for an illustration. So I've encountered this many times before and after that, that affirmations for me do seem to work, but I have to be extremely clear on exactly what it is yeah. that I'm asking for, because otherwise, uh, sometimes the universe plays a trick on you. The old adage comes to mind, be careful what you pray for, you just might get it. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. I had uh, read a story a a while back, and I don't remember where I read this, but I I will never forget it. And it kind of falls into the same vein where uh, a lady had been 
wanting a handful of $100 bills. And she wanted to use the technique of visualization. So she was envisioning these $100 bills fanned out in her hands like a deck of, like you'd fan out a deck of cards. And because of course, $100 bills would just sort of flop over, she was envisioning kind of these these stiff $100 bills so you could read the the number and, and whatnot. And she worked on this and worked on this and worked on this. And then she decided she was gonna have a game night. And her friends came over and brought different games and whatnot. And she gets handed this deck of cards and the back of the deck of cards was all pre-printed hundred dollar, hundred dollar images on the back of this deck of cards. And she, she couldn't believe it because she was looking at exactly what her visualization was, but they weren't hundred dollar bills, but yep. she got the cards. And I, I, that very much reminds me of that story. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a matter of being clear about what it is that you want. And of course, if what you want involves something that is extremely unlikely, you may have to wait a long time or maybe never. Uh, and worse, if what you want is to change the behavior of somebody else, that is possible, except it's also within esoteric traditions considered black magic because it's overriding somebody else's free will. Do you and think interestingly that is even true if somebody is ill and you intentionally want them to get better hmm. if you don't ask their permission it's still black magic mm, interesting yeah. so do you think motive makes a difference uh in when you're <laughs> when you're after something if for example i i have a really good example from my life uh i started podcasting i do another podcast and um, I really enjoyed it. And I said to my wife at the time, wouldn't it be great if a bag of money fell out of the sky and I could do this full time and, and entertain people and bring this message that I'm, you know, trying to convey to, to people. And she said, if it's supposed to happen, it will. And, uh, six weeks later, I was offered a package at work. You can either stay here and grow with a company or we'll give you a big bag of money and you can go on your way. <laughs> it, was, mm -hmm. it was a really easy decision. But my motive wasn't really a selfish one at the time. It was like, I enjoy doing this. I know people like the fact that I do this. So it was easier maybe for me to get past the, I feel selfish for asking for this thing, if you know what I mean. Does that make a difference, do you think, in... Uh, in working on these things. I don't even know how to place it. Well, as you just described, there was no anxiety mm -hmm. underneath it, right? Yeah. So motivation certainly helps to focus attention. And if you can focus attention without anxiety, that is effortless striving. Mm -hmm. It absolutely is a perfect example of, of what you describe in your book. Yeah. Oh, that is, I just had about a hundred aha moments run through my head <laughs> at this is that just the idea that because oftentimes we hear the idea that what's attached to this is if you are being of service then something is more likely to happen and I, mm -hmm. I i hear this so much and that makes complete sense where it's less about the being of service and more about the fact that we as a maybe as a, as a society have less anxiety about being selfless to others than we do about having self-care for ourselves that we are are sort of trained at this point to think well if we ask for something to ourselves then maybe that is 
maybe we're being selfish and that might bring up the anxiety that might t- put a blocker in some of this stuff. Yeah, there, there's really nothing wrong about asking for things for yourself because after all, I agree. As an embodied system, where that's what we do. I mean, that's how we survive. Uh, the the question is whether if if you ask for something for yourself and you get it, and I've done this many times, and oftentimes it works. Uh, what are you going to do with that? Like again, does it, yeah. it does it make you become unbalanced? Does it give you a sense of grandiosity or worse, narcissism? Mm-hmm. Uh, it can lead to that in some personalities, whereas in others, uh, you you kind of accept it and say, "Oh, that that's cool." Yeah, right. <laughs> you don't need to go much beyond that, saying, "Oh, okay, the universe uh, is is reactive in some way, and that's nice." Yeah, the it, oh this this stuff is it's so fascinating to me because over my over my lifetime as well I've the the things that I have been able to 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 manifest or that has been uh, that I've been able to allow uh I mean there's been stuff that I have no explanation for other than this. I mean it, it is it, I I would like to think that I've got a bit of a talent for <laughs> for this stuff. Um but I noticed one of the things that you talked about in your book, which really fascinated me, was the idea that these types of things, the order of things, uh, can almost correct itself if there is some, maybe somebody or something that doesn't want the manifestation. And maybe I'm off when I'm explaining this. Um, but I thought it was really interesting that you talked about that there can be a pushback to sort of that blip in time and space if if that's either not wanted by somebody or or something like that is 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 that accurate because i thought that was really interesting well sure i mean the, the moment you accept the idea that uh one mind can manipulate the world to some degree and and you want something again depending on what it is that you want if you want something that's going to require other people to be involved in some way not overriding their free will, but just doing something. Sure, they may not want to do that. Mm-hmm. So now you have you have affirmations that are clashing against each other, mm. and you'll end up with nothing because they they. I mean, one person might be stronger than the next in terms of their ability to focus, but nevertheless, anytime you you have anything in the way, any kind of friction, it will reduce the the ability to actually manipulate the world. So, yeah, this is one of the reasons why I think that in traditional sorcerers would never tell anybody what they're doing, their methods, probably would keep their laboratory or their place secret, all of it. It's like you want to, don't don't have other minds involved in whatever it is that you're doing. And this is one of the reasons that for for many, many years at our laboratory, at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, I didn't want pictures taken of it. I didn't want anybody to know where it was. Mm. Exactly the same reason that a biologist doesn't want dirty test tubes. Yeah. We're, you know, we're doing experiments involving intention, which does not need to be local. And so if you're talking about non-local intentions, it could be any of the 8 billion people in the world, and perhaps animals too, uh, who, who if they direct their attention towards the lab or an experiment, that becomes dirt or noise. And so we keep that out of the mix. 
Oh, that's that's so powerful. I, like I know it just even within my own life, and I've Mike, I've talked to you about this before. It, I've I've always been very very choosy about the the people that I I spend time with because that's something that I've always noticed where it's almost like that feeling when you walk into a room and that person might have a big smile on their face and might be congratulating you. But at the end of the day, you know, they're, they're going home and they're griping or they're searching your Facebook page and being bitter or whatever's going on about, you know, a success you've had or, or anything like that. And so I think, I think there's even that implication just becomes that much more, uh, when you realize that you know intention and and things like that from other people really really does cause an effect and it it does makes you want to it makes you want to ensure that you've got the the right people around you and that you're, when you're telling somebody good news make sure they're they're happy that you're you're telling them that good news. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's true. This I mean in in Buddhism, uh, uh, right association is one of the one of the guidelines. Right, mm-hmm. you do the right action, right association with the right people, and all the rest of it. Uh, yeah, it's very important because it's very easy for uh, the human vices to begin to override any of these phenomena. So, if you tell yeah. something amazing happened, you need to tell somebody else; they could squash it immediately, which, of course, is not what you want to hear. So, wow, it does fit into this notion of choose your friends wisely. Yeah, absolutely. Do you th- <laughs> yeah. do you think that? When do you think that somebody on the outside could have that level of of influence towards somebody else if they were feeling disconnected within themselves? Like if somebody's if somebody's in alignment is is sort of figured this stuff figured this stuff out and is is you know doing doing pretty well, living pretty pretty positively in terms of their own self dialogue and and things like that. Do you think somebody in that negative state could still could still influence that if you know if they're if they're kind of out of sync or disconnected from from who they are do you think that still has the same level of power or does that positivity and alignment tend to override somebody who's being a little bit more disconnected or negative i think it affects it but it's not clear that it would override interesting a lot of it depends though on the individual talents involved. Right. Just think of it as uh, if you have a magnet and you put iron filings on it, most of them will go along with the lines of force, the magnetic force. Yeah. Some of them won't, but the the overall thrust of it is that, yeah, you'll, you'll see lines of force, even though there's some pieces of metal filings that are not playing the game. Well, there's, you know, in living systems, there's noise. In human affairs, there's noise. There's there's such a large range of possibilities that, again, the reason why the, traditionally affirmations should be done in secret is so that you reduce the noise. Oh, that makes that makes so much sense. Mike, are you having the level of aha moments about this that I am? Well, yeah, I and I feel uh, a lot of <laughs> affirmation. <laughs> Uh, as to what I'm already doing. So yeah, it's pretty fascinating talk. That's for sure. Uh, it's it's so cool. Uh, it, now this is this is a little bit out in left field, but still sort of follows the same, same subject of what we're talking about. Neville Goddard in one of his books uh, ha- came up with a process that I found it just stuck out to me. And it was called the revision process. And 
I, I wasn't sure what to make of this at first, but the idea was, was that if something happens to you, whether it's it be a negative or a positive, doesn't really matter. But that if we begin to live or reenact the incident as if it went down differently, if something else happened, say you got in a great big argument with somebody and, you know, you wish that it had gone down differently. The idea of visualizing that it did and that then things in that present moment will begin to change. And I thought that was really, because that's different than any other process, any other practice that I'd heard about before. Have you heard about anything like that? Yeah. So they're talking here about retrocausal yes. effects. Uh, there is evidence that, uh, that retrocausality exists. Uh, I mean, in a sense, it's we can think of it as precognition. Precognition is something about the future retrocausally uh, coming backwards in time and influencing us in a way that we perceive that right. future event. So th there's a lot of evidence in favor of precognition. Of course. Uh, there's not that much understanding of how that works, uh, other than we know that most of the equations in physics are time symmetric, or time doesn't even show up in the equation. So our understanding of time is based mostly on thermodynamics, which is a statistical law. It's not the same as other laws in physics. And even the word law should be put in quotes because all it means is there's a certain regularity to the physical world. Right. But thermodynamics in particular, because it's a statistical law, it means that things do not always have to go in one direction. And certainly in human experience, we do see eventually, occasionally, that things in the future will affect our behavior now. And there have been experiments, like a, a pretty famous one that was reported in The Lancet, which is one of the top medical journals in the world, on retroactive healing. So similar to what you were talking about, that in this case, people were ill. Uh, they were identified as being ill. I forget exactly what illness it was, but there were people in a hospital with a certain illness. And then People prayed for them to get better uh, in the past so that their illness now would begin to subside. And they did that experiment and the results were wildly significant. Wow. And it was still published. And people afterwards, when looking at that, thought it was a spoof. Yeah. Like, why is The Lancet publishing this thing? Well, yeah. The Lancet will occasionally publish anomalous things because there are a lot of anomalies in medicine. And so uh, it's possible, I would say, that, that this sort of retroactive healing can take place and uh, healing in, in the broadest sense of that term. Sure. Uh, and a case can even be made that in the case of spontaneous healing, of which there are thousands of cases where uh, medical, really serious medical issues would disappear overnight. Yeah. Like the, the typical case is somebody goes in for a chest x-ray, there's a huge tumor, they're going to have surgery the next day, something happens, prayer or holy water or something, and they go on the next day and they take the preparatory x-ray for the surgery and the tumor is gone. And mm -hmm. they have both of the x-rays, one with a tumor and one without a tumor. Well, where did it go? It can't, it can't disappear that quickly, but it did. Well, one possible way of thinking of what happened is that uh, it, it 
the effort, the intention went in the past and changed the course of a progression of evolution of that particular illness such that it would take a slightly different route. And so the present that we're currently in is one where it went away. Yeah. Whereas the previous x-ray was a present that it no longer exists or some other world or something. So this steering through the possibility of multiple worlds or multiple possible presents does seem to be possible. Again, it, it really makes your brain hurt when you think about it, though, because <laughs> we, we don't normally experience world the, our, our everyday awareness like that. And yet, both in the laboratory and in these spontaneous cases, something like that does seem to take place. Oh, but it's so wonderful. <laughs> you know, if it's going to make your brain hurt, it sure does it in the best way. Because I, I, I really think that this, this type of thing for the people who are open to hearing it, to understanding some of this stuff. I mean, this to me is where, like you say, the magic really is in, in life. I mean, this is, is so phenomenal. And, and so many people, especially over the last you know number of years, I think have been just hammered down by, you know, what they, what they're told is reality or, you know, you're, you're doomed to this or doomed to that. And, and to me, this is such a brilliant, mm. just a brilliant glimpse into what we are really capable of and, and hope and, and all of that kind of thing. Uh, this has been amazing. Uh, Dean, let our audience know where they can find more about you and your books and give them the lowdown. Well, my personal website is deanraden.com. I work at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which is noetic, N-O-E-T-I-C dot org. And I'm also a co-founder and chairman of a genetic engineering company, which is called Cognigenics. So that website is cognogenics.io, where cognogenics is spelled pretty much the way it sounds. Um, and then I'm also an editor of a journal, and I write books, and I do lots of things. This is, this is one of the problems, by the way, if you're too curious <laughs> about everything, uh, right. you, you get involved in everything. So <laughs> yeah, I, I enjoy doing lots of things. Oh. So mainly it's deanraden.com and noetic.org. Why did they only put 24 hours in a day? I always ask. <laughs> well, not only that, but but a, a lifetime is nowhere near no. enough. Like like 100 years is kind of okay, provided you're <laughs> mentally sharp. Yeah. But maybe 1,000 years would be better. Mm -hmm. It might help a little bit. I know I've always... I'm always involved in something or, you know, this new idea comes up and it's like, and you, it, there are ideas that are so wonderful and interesting that you can't just put it, put it aside and think, well, I'll just get to it later. <laughs> There's just so many wonderful things that are out there and it's, it's great, but it, thank you so, so much for taking the time today to do this. And it has been such a pleasure having you. I, I hope we can, we can have you back sometime in the future. Sure. It's my pleasure too. Here's Morgan for this episode's segment of Spiritual Healthcare. In this episode's edition of Spiritual Healthcare, the segment of the show where you get to be the creator and designer of your paranormal and spiritual experience, we're going to tell you about a process called the inner space process. This is a great process for when things seem chaotic or you're finding your mind overrun with a lot of clutter. 
Sometimes when the mind begins to run you instead of you running the mind, it can seem overwhelming, frustrating, and downright debilitating. So close your eyes. You'll find that the mind tries to immediately take over, telling you all the things you should be doing or not doing or need to be done. But this time, bring your focus into your inner body. Begin with your hands. And as you sit in this stillness, feel the aliveness of your hands, the tingling, the movement. Draw this focus into your chest and throughout your body. Feel the tingling aliveness that is spirit coursing through you. Spend a few moments feeling this and take some deep breaths along with exhales as you focus. You will find that an inner space arises within you when you focus on this inner work and breath. Don't fight to hang on to it. If a thought comes, let it go. When you feel complete, open your eyes and enjoy the new sense of aliveness that is now present within you. Being this practice and bringing this practice into your day, you will find that it becomes easier and easier. You need nothing to be happy, but you need something to be sad. Remember, at the end of seeking, all is consciousness. Stay in peace, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Supernatural Circumstances, a co-production of Entity Seeker Paranormal Research and Teachings and Good Egg Studios. This podcast is part of the Curious Cast podcast network. Theme music by Corey Johnson of Catalyst Records in Edmonton, Alberta. You can find out more about Morgan Knudsen at EntitySeeker.ca and more about me and listen to my other show at DarkPatine.com. Feel free to email the show at SupernaturalCircumstances at gmail.com. Good night for now. <laughs>